dig in, talk about the Lord Jesus Christ, great line, let your goodness bind my heart like a fetter, like a chain to you. What a, what a great line in that hymn. Today we're going to be looking at and continuing our study of the book of John. We're going to be looking at specifically verses 14 through 18 of chapter 1 as we finish up the prologue of the book of John. And now, we, we live in a world, most of you know, we live in a world that, that rejects absolute truth. Any attempts or any desire to promote biblical truth is often rejected out of hand. Most people will say something along the lines of, well, that's all well and good for you, or, or even maybe even more confrontational and say, well, I don't need that religious crutch. But when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, there, there's so many different views about who He is and what He's done. In fact, I read a survey recently, uh, it's a 2016 survey of Australians, and 66% of those respondents believe that Australia would not be better off if people were more religious. In that most recent survey, the number of people who identified as non-religious increased by 10% over the same survey in 2011. But what was interesting as you dig into those survey results is you'll see that though the number of people that, that ceased identifying as religious decreased, the number of people inc- that excuse me, the number of people that identified as atheist did not go up. Because what's happening is more and more people are identifying as spiritual and less as religious. Well, that spiritual spirituality, excuse me, is a syncretism. It's a mixture of what they, what they want to believe, whatever fits their fancy and isn't too constricting on their selfish, ultimately fleshly desires. And well, the thing about John is, is that John was in a world that dealt with the same type of syncretism. He had synchronistic activity even among the Jews. You had many Hellenistic Jews. In fact, the Sadducees were synchronistic in that they, were, they desired power and they had religious trappings to go along with their power. Well, it was common. And so John lays out in this prologue absolute truth, truths that you can believe. He lays out the, the truth of Jesus' existence, his eternality as God, and his desire, John's desire is that as you read his gospel, you'd come to, to understand that Jesus was the Son of God and that you would believe in his name, have salvation in his name. That's the great thing about John is he tells us at the end of his gospel that that's the purpose of his gospel is that you would believe. Because most people don't have a problem when it comes to Jesus at first. They think of him as a historical person. In fact, most surveys, people really do believe he's a historical person. And they believe he's a good man. But what they have a real problem with is Jesus' claims of exclusive truth. He is not inclusive. He's exclusive. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except by me. Jesus is, he lays out exclusive truth. And truth, by the way, is reality as God defines it. We don't get to redefine truth. If you redefine truth, it's not biblical truth. It's not God's truth. It's man's own ideas about truth. Man's own ideas about his place in the world and his condition. In fact, when you think about truth, truth is, is, is God's definition of sin. Sin is, is missing the mark, is not living up to God's righteous standard. Man has, has long since tried to redefine sin. Because if you redefine sin, then what we do isn't that bad. It isn't evil. It isn't an affront to God. And so truth, the, the, the truth, biblical truth, God's truth, is accepting His definition of sin, that, that we are a sinner. We're born that way. And then there must be a remedy for that sin because there's a penalty for that sin if there's not a remedy. And that remedy is only found, as John tells us, in Jesus Christ. You see, apart from Jesus Christ, apart from salvation in Jesus Christ and His exclusive claims of salvation. 
every spiritual force or every spiritual idea that man has, the, the spirituality that men claim that they desire, and every man-made religious activity all leads to one place. That's the fires of hell. And so John in his prologue, he, he's been laying out this picture of the Word of God as God and with God. He's the light of the world. He's the life of the world. He's the creator of all things. And here in the last section, verses 14 through 18, you have the crescendo. You have the, the cornerstone of Christianity. Here we have the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It's the key to believing in Christ. Because He's fully God and He's fully man. He wasn't just a good man. He was the God-man. Jesus was born the God-man. His incarnation is what we celebrate at Christmas. He lived a perfect life. He satisfied the demands of the law in perfect righteousness. And then he died on a cross in our place and substituting himself for our sins. And as a result, all the wrath that, that we deserve was placed upon him. And it's through him we have salvation alone. Without God satisfying his wrath in his son, Mankind is still under God's wrath. You see, we live in a world of false spirituality, of falsehoods, claiming to be truths. live in a world that denies Jesus' Christ's true nature. If you deny His true nature, you're not a Christian, no matter what you say. In today's passage, John is going to lay out fundamental truth. The fundamental truth of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And then he's going to give three reasons for you to believe it. Because he wants this to be foremost in your minds as you begin, as we begin to study and as we read his gospel. So let's go ahead and look at the text and we'll dig into it this morning. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And John testified about him and cried out, saying, this, is, this was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained Him. So John begins and he says, The Word became flesh. And what has he been saying about the Word so far, if you remember from the rest of this prologue? He said it's the same Word that was with God. It's the same word that was and is God. It's the same word that created all things. It's the same word that gives life to all. It's the same word that is the, the light of the world in the darkness. And he says, this word became flesh. It's an aorist tense for Jordan. It stresses a, a particular point in time. The word of God is also the Word, man. So the Word God is the Word, man. And He took on flesh. Now the key passage when we deal with the incarnation is Philippians chapter 2. And I'll have you guys turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Paul has a wonderful, wonderful exposition when it comes to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. In Philippians chapter 2 verse 5 Paul says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." 
And so when we read this passage, it's often called the kenosis passage. It's a very famous passage. It's been talked about for thousands of years, about how God, uh, how, how a holy and powerful, omnipotent God could become fully man, how Jesus Christ took on a human nature and He added a human nature to His divine nature and He became fully God and Sorry, he became fully man, along with the fact he was already fully God. And the key to this is is in verse, well, verses 5 through 8. He says that have this attitude in yourself that Jesus Christ, in verse 6, he existed in the form of God. Now, we often think of form as, as the outside aspect of a person. And that's why at times people have struggled with this because they read that English word and they, they assume Jesus is changing forms. That, that they, they accept that modalistic heresy where, where there's one mode of God and he, and he transforms into another mode. But the word there in the Greek is, is morphe. It has to do with the inner nature of something, the inner substance of something. In fact, it's the same word used in verse 7 when he says he, he, he take the form of a bondservant. He just didn't take the appearance of a bondservant. He took the total aspects of a servant. And then he died as a servant. You see, Jesus exists and existed in the very nature of God. He was fully God. And he said that he did not regard equality with thing to be grafts. He was equal to God. You see, when he, Jesus took on flesh, he did not cease being God. And what it means there when he, he didn't regard equality with thing and he emptied himself, what, what, what Paul is saying here is that Jesus did not insist on holding all the benefits and the privileges of his position as God. Said he emptied himself. Notice it say he didn't empty. He didn't empty out of himself. He didn't empty out his divinity, but he literally emptied himself. Now this is this is deep. It's hard. He emptied himself by adding human flesh, by adding human nature. It's, di- it's, it's subtraction by addition. Because his divine nature was unable to be fully expressed while he was on this earth. His incarnation concealed his full deity. You see, all of his attributes could not be fully expressed while he was on earth, while he, was, while he took on that human nature. Right? He couldn't be omnipresent everywhere at once because he was limited to space and time. He couldn't be all-powerful, and aspects of his, of his power had to be restrained in that human nature that he took on. And as I, as I think about ways to describe this to you and as a way to illustrate this, I, I think the best way to do it, and it relates also to his glory later on we're going to talk about, if you can imagine that Josh... He's out in Wallaroo, he wants to, wants to go, and he's thinking about buying a new truck. And he goes to the car dealership, and he, and he says, I want to test drive this brand new shiny truck. The guy says, sure. Josh takes it, and it's just rained. And Josh says, well, I've got to get my money's worth, and I've got to really test drive this thing. So he takes it on dirt roads, and he gets this thing all muddy. I mean, it's so muddy, you have to turn the windshield wipers to, just to see out. It's caked with mud. Josh brings it back to the dealership, and the dealer goes, Hey, where's my shiny new car? And Josh says, It's there. It's right there. It's just underneath all that mud and gunk. You see, Jesus, when he took on flesh, his his divine nature was still there. But it was unable to be fully expressed. His glory was not able to be fully shown because he had his human nature that he had taken on. Now, when we think about his human nature, we need to make sure that we understand it's he's not Hercules. He's not half God, half man. He's 100% God and 100% man. One plus one equals one when it comes to the God-man. 
He's the Word, the Creator. And as the, in the incarnation, the Creator entered His creation. The timeless and eternal God entered time and was born in a manger in Bethlehem. While on earth he retained his full deity, yet he did not fully express it because of his human nature. Now, I love uh, it's a quote by Bruce Ware, who's a professor at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And he, and he had this good quote, and I think this is a, a, a way for us to kind of sum this up and move on. But he says, Surely the outworking of the two natures in Jesus is beyond our full comprehension. Just as with the Trinity, in which we have in human life no exact correspondence, so we are incapable of understanding completely how one person could have two full and integral natures. How it was that Christ lived fully as a man, while being also fully God, always has been and shall be a mystery. So I just wanted to emphasize, and John wants to emphasize that, that the fundamental truth right here, Christianity, is that the Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. He added a human nature to Himself. And John continues and he says, not only did he, did he add a human nature and he became flesh, but he dwelt among us. Now the word there in the, in the Greek is the same word that is used in the, the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. For Exodus 24, 8, when God says, Let them construct a sanctuary for me, that I may dwell among them, that I may tabernacle among them. And now remember, John's writing to a Jewish audience, so he's, he's, they, they would have gotten that picture immediately. The word dwelt there, or tabernacle, it means that, that God has chosen to dwell among His people in a more personal way than He did in the Old Testament. Right? God is residing with His people. Okay? John wants, wants us as readers, because he's, he's, like I said, he's emphasizing a Jewish audience. He wants these readers to, to immediately say, all right, well, Jesus is the tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. You see, in the Old Testament, God dwelt with His people in a very limited fashion. But Jesus is our Emmanuel. He's God with us. And just as God in the Old Testament dwelt at the center of the Israelite camp. Jesus Christ is at the center of our faith and our practice, the center of our lives. We know that after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, we receive the, the Holy Spirit that indwells in us, the Spirit of Christ. And we are in union with Christ. So for a limited amount of time, Jesus dwelt on earth. He tabernacled among men. But now, for us as believers, as children of God, Jesus dwells in our hearts on a permanent basis. You see, one thing about this tabernacling, it was, a, it was not a, a temporary humanity, as some will say. This is a, a temporary stay on earth. And when we think about the tabernacle in the Old Testament, those in the book of Hebrews says those things are, are shadows. They point towards a more permanent reality in Jesus Christ. When you think about the just the, the picture of how God told Moses to build the tabernacle and construct it, very precise. You have a bronze altar at the beginning for sacrifices that pointed towards the once and all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10, you have the bronze bowl for healing, or sorry, for cleansing that points toward the, the cleansing we have to be able to enter God's presence through Jesus Christ. The golden lampstand, which was the only light in the tabernacle, points to the one true light in Christ. The altar of incense reminds us of, of Christ continually making intercession for us as the high priest. The Ark of the Covenant, and on top of the Ark was the, was the mercy seat and the cherubim. And the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies once a year and he would offer the, the blood of the sacrifice, 
on the Day of Atonement, and he would sprinkle that blood on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, which is the mercy seat. And, and it would be the, the symbolized the fact you had the broken law of God in the Ark. You had the blood that was between the broken law, and then you had the Shekinah glory above the Ark. And you have the blood that was between the broken law and God's presence. You see, the tabernacle, those things, they pointed to Christ. They were but shadows of what was to come. Now, those that were Jewish readers would have instantly got that. They would have said, oh, I see. In the past, God dwelt among His people in a limited fashion. His Shekinah glory dwelt in a tabernacle and then then in a temple. And it represented His abiding presence among His chosen people. And John is saying something here that's even more extraordinary than that. He's saying that God the Son humbled Himself. He took on a humanity, took on human nature, and He dwelt physically among His people. He was and He is Emmanuel. I love... 1 John, at the beginning of 1 John, John says something very similar. And you can see that, that John never got over this fundamental fact of the incarnation. He says in John chapter 1, verse 2, And the life was manifested, and he said, And we have seen, and we testify, and we proclaim to you the eternal life. That should be capitalized. We, we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and which was manifested to us. And what we have seen and we heard, we proclaim to you also, that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. You see, John never got over that fact. He was humbled by it. In fact, he refuses to mention his own name in this whole gospel. Over and over, he, he, in, a, in a humble way, He just refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loves. He never got over the fact that that Jesus, that that the Word took on flesh and dwelt among him, and that John saw God flesh and spoke with him and ate with him and touched him. See, God took on flesh. It's the incarnation. It's the fundamental truth of Jesus Christ entering his universe for the express purpose of living a sinless life and dying on a cross for our sins. See, that's the incarnation. And that's the fundamental truth that John is crescendoing to here. And now John continues and he gives three reasons. After declaring this, this wonderful truth, a word took on flesh, became flesh, and He dwelt among us. He lays out three reasons that you should believe. The first reason you should believe is because of His glory. John said, and we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, when we think about God's glory, remember this is written to a, a Jewish audience. They would have understood that God's glory is, is both the, the, the physical manifestation of His presence among His people, but God's glory is also the, the sum total of His attributes. So God appeared to men in a way that he could, they, they could relate to. Because if He appeared in His, in his full glory, in His full power, we would be incinerated. You think about God's presence among His people in Genesis 3.8. said that God walked among the garden with Adam and Eve, and they were in His presence. And it uses the word presence in Genesis 3.8. We all know what happened, right? They sinned. They were driven out of God's presence. They were driven out of the garden, away from Him. And then in Exodus 33.14, it's a great passage God says to Moses, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Now Moses being pretty cheeky, being pretty bold, Moses says, Lord, show me your glory, not knowing what he was asking. But in Exodus 33, God says that 
I can't show you my glory. No one has seen God's face. And no one can see my face and live in Exodus 33, 20. But he said, I will make, I will make my goodness, an aspect of my glory, go by you. And you'll be able to see my backside. But I will, I will hide you behind a rock and I will cover you with my hand. Lest Moses be destroyed by the power and the majesty of God. And as God passed by in his goodness, Moses heard The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And I love Moses' response, verse 8 of chapter 33 in Exodus. Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. See, Moses got just a glimpse of God's glory. Shining around the rock that he was hidden in. You see, God's nature and his attributes were revealed as his glory passed by. And then you have God's glory filling his temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 10 and 11. And it says, It happened that when the priest came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. You see, God's presence, when the temple was completed and Solomon dedicated the temple, God's presence dwelt continually in the holies of holies. The Shekinah glory of God was present among His people. And that's what you had. Had God dwelling among his people for, for centuries. But I'd like for you, if you will, to turn with me to Ezekiel. I know many of you don't usually go to Ezekiel, but I'd like to show you something that relates to God's glory. Maybe something you've never noticed, but something that was immensely important and that John's readers would have fundamentally understood. We're Gentiles, we don't often think about this. You look at Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter. Um, Ezekiel chapter 10. No, in fact, let's go to Ezekiel 8. Sorry, Ezekiel 8. I'm going to show you a few things just to give you some context of what was going on in the nation of Israel. In Ezekiel chapter 8, and I'm just going to bounce through these verses pretty quick until we get to the main part. But Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 5. Now, God is taking Ezekiel. Ezekiel's in captive in Babylon, and he's taking him through, through a vision or through in the spirit, we're not sure, but he's taking him to the city of Jerusalem. He's taking him to the temple so that Ezekiel can, can see what's going on, the idolatry among the Israelites. And he says in verse 5, Son of man, raise your eyes and now and look towards the north. And I raised my eyes toward the north, and behold, to the north was the altar gate, and was this idol of jealousy at the entrance. Now, we don't know what that idol of jealousy, but we see idol worship at the gates of the city. Okay, Look down to verse 10. Now, God showed him there's a hole in the temple, the outer temple, and God says, go, go take a look. Verse 10, so I entered and looked, and behold, every form of creeping things and beast and detestable things, which all the idols Excuse me, were, and all the idols of the house of Israel were carved on the wall all around. So this is in the, the outer temple. And he kind of goes through a wall, a hole in the wall, because it's, becoming, it's got disrepair. And he looks in and there's, there's, there's animals and creeping things and all sorts of idols that have been then carved into the walls for idol worship. Okay? And then in verse 11, standing in front of them were 70 elders of the house of Israel. With Jezanine, the son of Shaphan, standing among them, each man with his censer in his hand and the fragrance of the cloud of incense riding. They're praying to these idols. Okay? And this is the 70 elders of Israel. These 70 elders later became the Sanhedrin. All right? And then look at verse 14. And then he brought me to the entrance of the gate of the Lord's house, the entrance of the actual temple. 
which was towards the north. And behold, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. Tammuz is a fertility god of the Assyrians. And they're weeping as part of their, the ceremony where Tammuz is, is, is uh, killed and, and resurrected in, in a picture of the, the cycle of the seasons. They're weeping. They're, they're worshiping the Assyrian god at the entrance to God's temple. Look at verse 15. Then he said to me, do you see this son of man? I will show you still greater abominations. And in verse 16, then he brought me to the inner court of the Lord's house. And behold, at the entrance to the temple of the Lord, between the porch, the front of the temple, and the actual altar. See how close they are? There were 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces towards the east, and they were prostrating themselves eastward towards the sun. So between the entrance of the temple and the actual altar of the Lord, they were 25 men facing with their backs towards God, worshiping the sun God. So when you think about Israel turning their backs on God, here it is literally turning their backs on God. Now I bring these things up because I want to show you a very important fact. Flip over to Ezekiel chapter 10. I want you to look at this. This is one of the saddest passages apart from the crucifixion in all of Scripture. Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 4. Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the temple, and the temple was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord so remember the glory of God, this kind of glory would, would continually rest above the Ark of the Covenant. But here we have, it's, we have the glory of God is leaving. The glory of God left the position above the cherub, and it went to the threshold, to the beginning of the temple. And no one noticed, and no one cared. Then flip over and look at verse 18. Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold over the temple and stood over the cherub. And when the cherub departed, they lifted their wings and they rose up from the earth in my side and the wheels beside them. And they stood still at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house and the glory of Israel, God of Israel hovered above them. Now it goes back to the cherub from the very beginning of, of Ezekiel and the vision that he saw. But the glory of God goes from the threshold and it moves what to the entrance of the east gate. And no one noticed, no one cared. And then flip over to chapter 11, verse 23. The glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain, which is the east of the city. And the glory of God departed the city of Jerusalem. And it rested momentarily on the mountain, which is east of the city, which is the Mount of Olives, by the way. And then the glory of God was not seen in Israel again. When Israel and Nehemiah rededicate the, the second temple after the first temple's destruction, after 70 years in exile in Ezra and Nehemiah, God's glory didn't reappear like he did in 1 Kings with Solomon's dedication. And that's the same temple, by the way, the one that Ezra and Nehemiah had built, the same temple that they were using in, in Jesus' day. It had been enlarged and aggrandized by Herod, but it was the same temple. And this is the wonderful and profound truth that John is bringing out that the Jewish audience would have gotten. The glory of God departed Israel in Ezekiel and did not return until Jesus Christ appeared. So John says you can believe the truth about Jesus because of His glory. Now this time... God's glory was veiled in flesh, and we see glimpses of that. We see glimpses of it in His transfiguration, and in His miracles, and in His crucifixion and resurrection. But we see, and this is what John's point, we saw His glory. They saw the attributes of God in Jesus Christ. They saw Christ's compassion. They saw His love, His wisdom, His knowledge, His power, His omniscience. They saw His wrath, His patience. They saw the attributes of God. They beheld His glory. John says, you can believe because we saw the glory of God. And we know from Isaiah 42 and chapter 45 that God will not share His glory with another. Ultimately, we'll see Christ's glory when He returns. 
Matthew chapter 25 says that, 25 verse 31, that says that Christ will return in glory and he will sit on his glorious throne. See, we'll see God's glory. But you can believe the truth about the resurrection. Sorry, the resurrection. You believe the truth about the incarnation because John saw his glory. The Jews would have gotten this after so many years without God's glory. He returned to his people. But John says also you can believe because of his grace. Look in verse end of verse 14. Its glory is only only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Right? Jesus is full of grace and truth. This makes the incarnate, incarnate word unique. He's supreme in his goodness. And his goodness is demonstrated in his grace. God is a, a gracious God, a saving God. That's what Moses heard. He's compassionate and gracious, full of loving kindness and truth. It's interesting that John says that Jesus was full of grace and truth because you can't separate grace and truth. You can't get grace without believing the truth about Jesus, about believing who He is and who He says He is. You have to understand that you actually need salvation, God's truth about your condition. And you have to believe the truth about who Jesus is. John says, look, we've experienced Jesus. We've experienced Him through His, his glory, His intrinsic goodness in this world. And we experienced Him through His grace. And then he adds a, another witness because, remember in the Old Testament, you have to have two or more witnesses to testify to something. John adds the witness of John the Baptist. John the Apostle adds the witness of John the Baptist. Verse 15, he says, John testified about him and cried out saying, This was he whom I said, he who comes after me is a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. You realize John is testifying to the Word being fully God and fully man here. He says, this was He who comes after me. Jesus was born after John the Baptist. But what does John say? He was born after me, but He has a higher rank than me. He's more prominent than me. And in fact, He says, He existed before me. John the Baptist testified to the, 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 the divine nature and the human nature of Jesus Christ. John, is giving, John the Apostle is giving further witness to his statements. In fact, when he says that he is, he is more prominent, literally the word there is, is proton. It means first. In fact, this title, proton, was, was given to princes. They were considered first. And so he's prominent. He's worthy of worship. You can imagine John the Apostle is saying, like, we go to court, and when we go to court, we promise to tell the truth. John is saying, I'm telling you the truth about Jesus. In fact, here's another witness. Here's John the Baptist testifying about Jesus' unique position as the God-man. Then he continues and he says, For his fullness we have all received. And what a wonderful statement. And grace upon grace. And he says the fullness, he means that, that the sum total which is in God, His goodness we've received. Right? Christ is the source of all our blessings. Christ is the source of God's grace. And He has infinite resources. Paul says something very, very similar in Colossians 2.9. He says, for in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In Christ dwells the, the goodness of God, the wisdom of God, the love of God, the grace of God, and He is the truth of God. And notice John says, we have all received. Remember, that's the same word. The same word is in verse 12. But as many as received Him, to them He, came, he gave the right or to what? To become the children of God. He's looking back. He's basically saying that for, for those that are believers, for all of us that are believers, we've received the inexhaustible fountain of God's grace in Christ. You think about it. Christ supplies the whole church's grace. It all comes from Him. And He says the word, and this is a wonderful statement, He says, and we've received what? Grace upon grace. 
The idea here, this picture, John is saying that it's like innumerable, super abundant grace. It's the continual waves of grace in our lives. When, when it seems like one aspect of God's blessing and His grace ends, here comes another one. When I was relaxing on my vacation recently, you know, I love to sit there on the sand and just kind of calmly, you just watch the waves of the, of the shore just constantly coming in. I know some of you have sound machines and you get that constant, constant waves. And I kept thinking as I was watching these waves that, that this, is, this passage where it's grace upon grace, His grace to us is like the, the waves of the seashore. It's never ending. It's inexhaustible. But that grace only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Right? It's, remember John says, he says, for those who have received him, right? those that have what? Verse 12, those who believe in his name. Right? Grace only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And as we continually experience God's grace, we, we deepen our trust in Him and we deepen our, our fellowship with Him. We are destitute, by the way, of any spiritual blessings apart from Jesus Christ. It is He that supplies all of our deficiencies, our poverty and our needs. And the moment we depart from Christ and pursue some vain thing in this world, we can't expect a drop of happiness because all good things, all good resides in Christ alone. We have no need to fear for God's grace is sufficient. We have no need to, to fear of what we would lack because God has the resources, the grace for each one of us. We have grace upon grace. Christ's resources are inexhaustible. John continues and he says, look, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. The grace, grace is superior. Jesus instituted, a, he mediated the new covenant. Moses mediated the old. The Jews revered Moses. But he says that, that the, the Christ, the New Testament is so much better than the old. The law exposed and, and defined sin. It brought guilt upon lawbreakers and showed that, that, that all of us were, were lacking in our righteousness before God. But the goal of the law was to lead us to Christ as we see our sinfulness and know that if we break one aspect of law, we've broken the whole law. One sin makes us fall short of the glory of God. That's the purpose of the law. So that we would in turn go to God in humility and, and humble ourselves and say, God, save me, I'm a sinner. That was the purpose of the law. You see, Jesus is superior to Moses because he's the media of the, the new covenant. He brought salvation by grace through faith in his death and resurrection. The sacrificial system was but shadows and, of, and of the spiritual blessings that we have actualized in Jesus Christ. But notice it says that the law was given through Moses. We see a progression from a God who gives to His people to what? The base and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. So we see a progression from a, a God who gives His law to His people to a God who, who comes to His people. You see, John is showing us that the incarnation is key to the grace that we experience daily in our lives. Salvation is impossible without the incarnation. Without, we can't be called a child of God apart from faith in Jesus Christ. We have to believe in Him and receive Him. So you can, you can believe or you should believe the incarnation because of God's glory, because of His grace, and finally, because of His revelation. Look at verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. John says no one can see God. Exodus thirty-three twenty. to reiterate that, You cannot see my face, God tells Moses, for no man can see me and live. 1 Timothy 6, 16 says that God dwells in inapproachable light. Well, then how was Moses able to talk with God? How are 
You know, we have the pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ as the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. How is this possible? Well, these, those theophanies are God-obscured. I like what Calvin says in, in trying to describe this. He says that, that it's as if we see God at a distance, not in His full glory. He concealed His majesty when He condescended. And John, the apostle here in verse 18, he says that he, Christ, has explained him, explained God. The word there in the Greek, we get our word exegesis. That's what we do as, as preachers and teachers. We exegete the word. We, we want to explain it and interpret it properly. We want to give what the meaning of the text is. Well, Jesus explained, he exegeted God. He wanted to to relate to the world who God is. And no one can know God except through Jesus Christ. That's the absolute and fundamental truth. That's an exclusive claim. Jesus gives, by the way, Jesus gives an adequate but not complete picture of the Father. There's still so many aspects. The hidden things belong to God, to quote Deuteronomy. There's so much aspects of God that we, we, we can't fully know yet. We won't know until we're, we're, we're physically in His presence with our glorified bodies. You see, Jesus was in the bosom of the Father. That word is interesting. It's a term meaning, uh, an old term really, even in the, in, the, in the Greek, but it's a euphemism. It has to do with intimacy. It means the folds of. Like you take a blanket and you folded that blanket up and Jesus is in the folds. You held the bosom was considered the heart in, towards the end and in the upper room when John the apostle was leaning on Jesus' breast. It was a, it was a picture of, of closeness, of intimacy. You can trust that when Jesus tells us about God and about the Father that He knows what He's talking about. He was in the bosom. He's in a continual fellowship with the Father. And that fellowship wasn't broken by the incarnation. The unity of the Trinity remained. You see, Jesus reveals what has been previously veiled to man. We have progressive revelation that culminates in Jesus Christ. He's the visible representation of the invisible God. No one can know God apart from Him. 1 John 2.23 says, Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. What are you confessing? You're confessing what? The truth about the Son. That He is who He claimed to be. He is who He is. Fully God and fully man. Without Christ and apart from God's grace, man has no hope of salvation. And all that spirituality and all that religion that's in this world is leading them to one place, and that is separation from God in hell. But those who, for all those that, what as John says in verse 12, but as many has received Him that believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. What a great statement. Calvin had some great, great, great truth, great gold on this passage. He says, The knowledge of God is the door by which we enter into the enjoyment of all blessings. And it is Christ alone that God makes himself known to us. Hence, too, it follows that we ought to seek all things from Christ. Look, when it comes to Jesus don't say that he's just a good man. Don't say that he's a moral teacher. And, and don't claim to be a Christian if you deny the fundamental truth, the fundamental truth that he's fully God and fully man. God's grace is only for those that receive him. And John says you can believe in the incarnation because of God's glory, because of his grace, and because of his revelation. 
One of my favorite hymns, and one of my kids' favorite hymns that they love to sing is Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And it's appropriate as we're approaching Christmas and we're talking about the incarnation and we, we celebrate that fact. I love Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It, it fits perfectly the second line of that famous hymn written by John Wesley himself Christ by heavest, excuse me, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead. See, hell, the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. Jesus is our Emmanuel. He's God with us. Brethren, I pray that you believe this fundamental truth because of God's glory, God's grace, and His revelation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your truth. We thank You that You laid aside Your privileges, Your status as the King of kings and Lord of lords, as the Creator of God, that You entered into Your creation. You took on a human nature and You in humility, lived a life as a man. You bore our shame, your body on the cross. We thank you for that. We thank you for your sacrifice. We praise you. We exalt you. You deserve our worship. Lord, we look forward to the day. We pray and we long for the day when you return that we see your full glory and you will rule and reign over this world. Lord, we thank you for the truth that is in your incarnation and pray for those that are listening that don't know you, that have not received you, have not believed upon your name, that they would be confronted with the truth of your claims of exclusivity, that no one can know God apart from you. They would repent of their sins. They would confess with their mouth that you are Lord, who will believe with their hearts. Lord, and be saved. Be saved from an eternal destiny apart from you. Lord, I pray for those of us that, that are believers already, that are children of God, that they would, we would worship at this truth. We would take joy in this truth. We would give thanks to you because of this truth. We are here, that we are children of God. And we just praise you and worship you. We pray this prayer in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.